Welcome everybody to Curiouser and Curiouser. My name is Sarayu and we get started um, on the show today. I wanted to give a pro programming note or two. Um, we are going to take a break for next week and then we'll be back with two very interesting guests who will uh, po will post a little something about both of them uh, probably in the uh, either uh, soon or later. Um, and uh, I also wanted to draw a little attention to the last two shows that we did. Um, we did a show on hardcore punk, uh, which I think turned out extremely well. And I do think that there is uh, a lot of intrinsic value because there are uh, sort of memories and retellings of uh, sort of the seminal hardcore scenes of a couple of different cities. Um, we spoke mostly about DC, but we also um, ventured into Nashville, a little bit of Palm Desert, uh, and New York City as well. So do check it out. There's a little bit of music as well. Um, and then yesterday we did a show on Dolly Parton, and um, I was listening back to it, and um, I was just you know, it, it struck me, I, I had started, I've always liked Dolly Parton, and in researching the show, I realized what an incredible human being she is. I was reading the lyrics, I was digging into who the persona and character of the person is, and I thought, this is really just uh, a superlative woman uh, in every way. I mean, the class and grace with, with which she deals with things, the humor, uh, and yet she's a tough lady uh, and she had to be tough to sort of make it to where she did in country music. And I would highly encourage you listening to that show, especially the first interview that we start off with, which is Barbara Walters interviewing her and trying to get under her skin. Um, and the way that she responds is so classic. I wish we could just take that and sort of play it to school children all over the country and say, this is how you should conduct yourself when somebody's trying to rile you up. And so anyway, I went yesterday and over the course of the last week and researching Dolly Parton from a uh, admirer to an absolute super fan. Like, I'm not joking. So I will be going out and buying some of her records and uh, reading up more on her. But uh, she's an amazing lady. So um, without further ado, I want to get started on the show that we have uh, today. It's a pre-recorded show. Um, it is with Dr. Craig Barrett. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of an intro about him. I did give an intro in the uh, uh, recording, uh, the recording, but uh, I want to share a little bit more because he is very modest and uh, generally, uh, I don't think it's somebody that sort of shuns the spotlight. So we were very lucky to get him, but. I want to share a bit about his background. So uh, Dr. Barrett is currently the chairman and president of the Basis Schools Group, which is a, an operator of charter schools in Arizona, Texas, and Washington, D.C. Uh, the results for them actually just came out recently, and apparently they're, like, uh, incredible. He is a leading advocate for improving education in the United States and has been involved in uh, creating or the leadership of a bunch of different organizations in this field. Um, but how you may know him is uh, Dr. Barrett was the CEO and chairman of the Intel Corporation, uh, which he uh, left in 2009. He actually joined the company in 1974 as a tech development manager, uh, became uh, a, the chief operating officer in 93, 
uh, and was also elected to the board of directors in 92, then became the fourth president uh, in 1997 and the chief executive officer in 1998, as well as the chairman of the board in 2005. So he's pretty much spent his entire career at Intel or uh, my entire lifespan, basically. Uh, he has earned a BS, MS, and PhD, all in material science from Stanford University. He joined the Stanford University Department of Material Science and Engineering until 74. 1974, raised, uh, he rose to the rank of an associate professor. He was also a NATO postdoc fellow at the National Physical Laboratory in the UK, a Fulbright fellow in Denmark, which is something I didn't know. Uh, and he's been the author of over 40 technical papers dealing with microstructure on the properties of materials. He also wrote a textbook on material science. He is the uh, chairman of the Carnegie Science uh, Institute. Uh, he chairs Change the Equation, which is a national STEM initiative, Stanford Children, Arizona, and the National Forest Foundation, vice chair of the Science Foundation of Arizona, co-chairs uh, one of our great national laboratories, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Uh, he's a co-chair of the advisory board there. He's a board member of Achieve, uh, which is an education reform organization working to raise academic standards and graduation requirements. Um, and he was the chairman of the United Nations Global Alliance for Information and Communication Technologies and Development. Um, and so that is just a brief summary of uh, his background. Uh, but most of you guys are going to know him uh, as being the CEO, one of the uh, very few, it's a it's a elite group, very few CEOs that we've had at the Intel Corporation. So um, what I'm going to do is just start playing the interview. Um, the topic that we're talking about is charter schools, uh, and American education is something that uh, is something that's very dear to his heart as well as his wife's. They've also made a uh, $10 million endowment to the Arizona State University, where the Honors College is named after them. So I'm going to go ahead and play the interview. If you have questions, comments, anything like that, please feel free to put them in the chat. Um, and we will either try to answer them now or at a later date. So without further ado, let's get started and uh, play this interview of Dr. Barrett. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Curiouser and Curiouser. My name is Sadie Shrinivasan, and today we have a very special program. Um, we are speaking to somebody that is truly a legend in the worlds of technology and business. He uh, taught at Stanford University, has held various positions at the Intel Corporation, culminating in COO, CEO, President, Chair, and Chairman of the Board. Um, he's a member of the National Academy of Engineering and author of over 40 technical papers and a textbook on material science. He's been the recipient of many, many accolades and awards for citizenship, technology, and business. He's the chair of the National Forest Foundation. Uh, he and his illustrious wife, who warrants a mention here, uh, Barbara Barrett, who was our former Air Force Secretary and a ambassador to Finland, among many other things, a, a fighter pilot also, I believe, uh, but she deserves her own show. 
uh, have endowed a uh, one of a, an endowment had funded an endowment at one of the largest universities in the country, ASU, which I also have to uh, carve out to mention uh, is. Uh, a extraordinary university. It's one of the largest public research universities in the country. It was ranked number one for innovation. It had the first school of sustainability, uh, five Nobel laureates, three members of the Royal Society, 24 National Academy members, seven Pulitzer Prize winners, 250 Fulbright American scholars, 23 members of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, nine members of the National Academy of Engineering, etc., etc., etc. Um, they have uh, endowed what is called the Barrett's Honors College, which is one of the top programs in the nation. Um, and uh, he is today the president and chairman of the Basis Schools, which is a charter school group among his various endeavors. Uh, and I will also say that he is incredibly humble and uh uh, understated. So it took pulling teeth to get him here. He's also, he and his wife are both phenomenal outdoors people, athletes, uh, and sports folks. And then, uh, most importantly, he is my former boss, former investor, uh, and current mentor. And I'm very happy to call in my friend, Dr. Craig Barrett. Uh, Craig, welcome to the show. Very good to be with you. Um, so Craig, today we're going to talk a little bit about, I'd love to dig into your background, but I won't embarrass you like that. Um, so uh, we're here to actually talk about something very important, uh, which is about American education. This is an area that you spend a lot of time on, particularly the state of American education. Uh, you've been involved in it really since your time teaching at Stanford. I know when you were at Intel, there were, I don't know if they provide them again, there were programs uh, that were very specifically oriented towards shoring up education in math and science through uh, competitions and programs. And then I know once you have left Intel, uh, you know, outside of your faculty and professional Intel endeavors, you've been very focused um, on this issue, particularly in the area of charter schools. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what drove your thought. Why are you choosing? You could spend your time on anything today. Um, why are you choosing this area of education and specifically American education? Well, in the big picture, uh, I think it's important for each generation to give back to the next uh, generations in line. The most important thing to give back is a good education, the opportunity for a good education so that we position the next generation to be competitive in the world's uh, business place. When I was at Intel, uh, we were very interested in hiring the smartest brains in math and science and engineering uh, from American universities. And increasingly, at that time, uh, the population of those students was increasingly uh, foreign nationals. Uh, and that was, uh, I think, the result of two things. One is uh, the U.S. has the best university system in the world overall and it attracts foreign students uh, but the uh, the other reason was that u.s students in high school were not doing particularly well in math and science and therefore not particularly well qualified to pursue a higher education in engineering science the stem fields so i became interested in 
the pipeline to universities in the U.S., uh, especially those students who are interested in in STEM topics. And if you look at the characteristics of the U.S. K-12 education system and compared it with the other OECD countries, about 40 countries, you find that uh, the U.S. used to be near the top in all the categories, but more recently they've assumed a mediocre position. They're about mid-tier in science or in the lower uh, half in math. And so you find that we're not doing a particularly good job educating our high school students to become future uh, leaders or at least interested in majoring in math, science, engineering, etc. So if you look at the reasons that we've fallen behind in math and science, you could have to go back a little bit in history, back into the 1950 time frame, when people started to study this topic. People were concerned that that young pe- young kids could not do multi-step math problems, could not really read and write with good comprehension, were falling behind in science. <laughs> A number of national studies took place. The Rockefeller Brothers in 1958, chartered a study. It was a national study in 1983, uh, a nation at risk. There was a study in the 1990s that the, the astronaut and Senator John Glenn chaired uh, before it's too late. The National Academies did a study in the same time frame, rising above the gathering storm. National Governors Association did studies. So roughly every 10 years for 60 years, there was a study on how to reform K-12 education, how to make it better in math and science, how to do a better job educating our kids. The conclusions of all those studies were almost identical. Uh, very simply, they listed the characteristics of a great education system and then analyzed the U.S. to see how it adhered to those characteristics. The three characteristics that stand out are that, very simply, no education system can be better than the quality of the teachers in the system. So you have to have great teachers. Uh, The second characteristic was that you have to have very high expectations for your students. You have to set the bar high mm-hmm. and we all know how flexible young people are no matter how high you set the bar they just barely jump over it um so if you set the bar higher and higher they're still going to be able to clear it and, and achieve better results and then the third characteristic was there has to be some accountability accountability both in the students part the teachers part the administrators part and if you then simply look at the education system in the U.S., uh, the quality of the teachers, uh, the expectations or the standards that we set, and the accountability, more or less conclude that we fail in all three categories. And so every 10 years, this study took place. Every 10 years, the esteemed group uh, doing the study 
listed the same observations and it was presented with great fanfare, red ribbon put around the report, put on the shelf, nothing was done. And so in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 2000, 210, 220, we're at the same place we were 60 or 70 years ago. So I got interested in in this topic of how do you improve education, not how you study it and find out what you should do. You know, hundreds of people have done this before us, but how do you actually achieve the results that you want? How do you make education better? So that's how I got interested in uh, the public K-12 education system, I got interested in charter schools and uh, how I'm doing, what I'm doing today. So, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, when I was in government, I often say that it was as much as uh, a learning experience as it was that I was there to serve. And uh, I was, uh, you know, as you know, I was working on connecting federally funded innovation with venture capital so we could speed it to market because it underlies everything in this country. And it comes out of that unique sort of collaboration that's so unique to this country of research and academia and private industry that comes together to have these incredible things sort of come out of it. Um, and I was shocked to find um, that uh, not just that, you know, China is ahead, which is something that you hear all the time, but uh, about just how far ahead they were and the kind of things that they were about to overtake us on if they haven't already. Uh, you know, the big ones we talk about are things like quantum and uh, uh, genomics and 5G. Um, but um, it became very sort of granular and tangible to me when I was going around and visiting all of the uh, commercialization and tech transfer offices, the directorates for our national laboratories. Uh, and I'm being told by folks at DARPA, oh yeah, you know, the the uh, innovation that is being funded by federally, uh, you know, uh, by uh, taxpayer dollars, um, your taxpayer dollars, uh, which people like myself, venture capitalists, don't fund uh, because it's too early and it's not our mandate, the Chinese are coming in with term sheets and willing to fund it, um, even though it's so early and the chances of failure of whatever it's going to become are so high. And she said, it's a real problem. Um, and then when you look at sort of the way that we approach um, education, um, you know, I talk about this, uh, about, you know, I've talked about TikTok and social media, which is uh, clearly, you know, it's a Chinese company, which has a huge following and everybody that is a Gen Z is on TikTok. Also, people from other generations, it's a very powerful social media. China does not allow its own citizens to use it except for educational purposes, meaning you can learn your math and science on it. But in America, we're doing dances, um, outing, you know, our boyfriend that cheated on us, um, whatever it is. It's a lot of entertainment. There is some learning content. And I think that's why uh, in the last administration, there was some talk about let's look into this and figure out what it's doing. And uh, this is clearly something that is planned. And so when you think about it, I think, my God, they are playing chess and thinking 20 years out about the kinds of things uh, that need to uh, be done in order to build a sort of robust and successful society. Um, and we're here arguing about social science issues, fighting about elections, 
and politics. And it's something that's very sort of worrisome because things like education, I mean, the fight kind of bubbles up, but it's not kind of what you hear the most about, which is very concerning. That's something well, that I've learned in government. Well, the, the, the results have been in front of us for several generations. Uh, the U.S. used to be considered to have the best uh, free public education system, K-12 system. Um, it's now roughly mediocre compared to world standards. Uh, your point is that in the, in the future, uh, technology, innovation, etc., is going to be increasingly important. You need a well-educated uh, uh, workforce. You need a well-educated a university research and system to take advantage of this, and so uh, we're not. We haven't done a particularly good job preparing for the future. And if you look at what's going on even today, uh, neglecting the COVID shutdown and losing one or two years of education uh, accomplishments for all the kids, even today we're not getting much better on the world standard even though we recognize the problem uh, and we have uh, a, uh, a roadmap of what we need to do uh, we're arguing about all the wrong things Yeah. so uh, I, I got interested in this and all you need to do is participate in one or two of these study groups and you put out your report and then nothing happens and you start to think well, golly, uh, things need to change. The current system is apparently incapable of changing. So what do you need to do differently if you want to succeed, if you want to get results which are internationally competitive? And, and that's where I, I, I started to look at uh, charter schools. You know, charter schools are public schools. They're publicly funded. Uh, they're not selective admission. <clears throat> they're just an alternative to the standard uh, K-12 public school. Uh, they were initially created as a uh, potential replacement for failing public schools, such that parents could send their children to an alternative. But they, they've uh, grown up. They've uh, spread into different areas. So that you now have charter schools, which are uh, different focus in public schools. So our public schools are kind of uh, a cookie-cutter approach. They have the same format, the same uh, curriculum, the same teaching method, the same focus as every other public school, independent of the kid's interest. So if a kid is really interested in STEM and goes to a school, uh, they're, they're not really allowed to to major in STEM topics in the K-12 system. You have to follow the standard format of the K-12 system. Charter schools uh, are free to remove themselves from this bureaucracy and provide educational programs of, of different types. You, you can have a liberal arts education, you can have a STEM education, you can have a fine arts education, you can have an, an education that focuses on service in the maritime industry or service in 
the police force. Uh, you can have a curriculum which kids may be very, very interested in and not available to kids in the normal public school. So in addition to just the initial impetus of charter schools of replacing failing public schools, that parents have a choice for their child to get a good education. Now charter schools have broaden their horizon, and they can focus on different subject areas and different uh, approaches that interest kids. So the kid doesn't have to go to the same boring cookie-cutter public school, but they can align their focuses with a alternative education system. And, and in addition to that, uh, charter schools, some charter schools have really embraced the the three fundamentals of a quality education, that is uh, uh, teacher quality, uh, high expectations, and accountability. Uh, our charter schools, for example, we do very, very strange things compared to the normal public schools. We typically don't hire certified teachers. We have some certified teachers, and they're very good, but we hire physics majors to teach physics math majors to teach math, uh, English majors to teach English. We hire content experts rather than pedagogy experts. Uh, and you know, if every one of us has gone to school, within about five nanoseconds in you know, the classroom, the students absolutely understand what the teacher knows about the topic and how much they love the topic that they're teaching. And they get enthused with an and enthusiastic teacher. And we hope to achieve that, which is quite different than the normal public school teacher model. And so in, in hearing you speak about charter schools, so first of all, let me take a step back and say charter schools apply to is elementary school, high school, or is it just one uh, for those people that aren't familiar with the model? Is it all it's, of education it, or? It's all K-12 education. So, um, you know, our basis charter schools we run elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools, and the various combination of grade levels. But it's K K to twelve. Uh, it's not selective admission. Uh, it is first come, first serve. You you can't uh, test students to come to your school to skim the cream off the top, so to speak. Uh, it's open to any applicant. If you have more applicants than positions, you have to run a lottery system basically yes. to to uh, uh, admit students. So it's a it's a standard uh, non-selective public school, but removed from the normal bureaucracy of public schools and allowed to arrange its curriculum to fit the interests of students. Uh, our curriculum in our schools is a, effectively a, a strong liberal arts curriculum, which is very strong in math and science, but also language arts, foreign languages, history, geography, economics, wide variety of topics. And your basis school group, does it cover the entire nation or is it the Southwest or California or what is your sort of well, mandate. First of all, you have to look at, at uh, the education as a very local level, effectively a state level. 
So different states have different rules about charter schools. There are actually a few states uh, that don't have charter laws and therefore don't have charter schools. Uh, but we tend to operate in areas where we have uh, the maximum flexibility within the system. Uh, we started in Arizona. We're uh, headquartered there, basically, but we also have member schools in Texas, Louisiana, and Washington, D.C., all areas which are have laws very favorable to operating charter schools and the autonomy of the school itself. So let me ask you, then it sounds like a great solution, and yet there is a lot of debate uh, and a sort of resistance against charter schools. And there have been accusations of all sorts of things. It's discriminatory, it's inefficient. Um, you're essentially privatizing education and using taxpayer funding. Uh, I've even seen, you know, uh, accusations of like, this is racist, it's politicized. So where are all of these accusations coming from? What is the politicization aspect uh, of this and why is this happening? Um, I, I've read enough to understand a little bit of where it's coming from, but you, you know, I'd love to hear from your perspective where all of this is coming from and what the kind of the pushback is. It sounds like a great idea. Um, why isn't this being adopted? Why is there pushback? I understand teachers unions uh, are pushing back on this. Why, why is all of this happening? Well, the entrenched bureaucracy pushes back by definition. It's, it's a little bit like when FedEx, UPS, DHL started and competing with the Postal Service. Uh, you had to push back. How could you possibly have uh, privatizing package delivery or mail delivery or anything of that sort? The intense bureaucracy pushes back. And quite frankly, they push back more from uh, a challenge to their uh, monopoly over the system than than examining the benefits that the change brings to the buyer, or in this case, the student. Um, so we have been accused in the press and by various entities, uh, wherever we operate, as not paying teachers as much as public school teachers get, of selectively admitting students, which we're not allowed to do. Uh, and all sorts of, of strange things, just because we're doing something different. We're challenging the entrenched constituency, and uh, the entrenched folks just don't like competition, and we're competition to them. Yeah. Uh, what what I like to say to anyone who complains about charter schools, a couple of things. One is, first of all, charter schools have to get acceptable results and the state the state gives you the charter so the state can take your charter away and bad charter schools are shut down unlike bad public schools normal public schools which are hardly ever shut down uh, we our kids have to pass the same state level tests uh, we have to undergo uh, financial uh, statements of solvency and uh, how we spend the government's money wisely and efficiently. Uh, uh, we may not have to hire certified teachers, 
but certain teachers have to undergo the same sort of background checks that normal public school teachers have to do. Uh, but ultimately, what people who criticize you don't want to look at is your results. Yeah. And and whenever we are involved in a, in a discussion, I basically ask the same question. What about our results don't you like? You know, we run the best, if you take our 35 schools and 25,000 students as a school district, we run the best school district in the United States from an academic standpoint. You mean at basis? What about that don't you like? You mean at basis schools? At basis schools. Yeah. What about the fact that 100% of our kids graduate and 100% of them go to college and on average they get about $120,000 of merit scholarship each uh, to go to college? What about that don't you like? And no one wants to engage you in that conversation. They want to put forward these uh, these myths about, well, you're, you're not taking kids that need special educations. Well, by law, we have to have kids. Uh, if, if they have special education needs, we have to meet those needs by law. Uh, uh, what about our racial makeup? It's, and is it different than the surrounding demographics of the, the uh, locales in which we operate? And it's pretty similar to the locales in which we operate. So... We've heard all of these complaints. What we're trying to do is focus on results achieved. And and it's not just basic charter schools. Uh, there are a large number of other charter operators in the U.S. who are getting great results. Uh, in fact, if you look at the national rankings of, of high schools in the United States, you know, there are 15,000 school districts in the United States. There are about 25,000 high schools in the United States. U.S. News and World Report effectively ranks the 25,000 high schools in the United States. And, and all of our high schools and our little charter group you know, are in the top 100 or so uh, in the U.S. Uh, in, in terms of STEM rankings, High schools rank just on the basis of their STEM activities, the, the hardcore academics. Our, our schools do even better. Our schools are essentially all in the top 50 or so. But other uh, other charter operators get similar results. And actually some public schools get good results. But the public schools that get good results are those schools called magnet schools, which specialize in things like STEM, but they are different than charter schools because they're selective admission. Kids have to pass a test and apply specifically with rec letters of recommendation to get into those schools. So they are not open enrollment schools, they're selective enrollment schools. The sort of things that people accuse our charter schools of being, but we are open enrollment by law, but the states run magnet schools, which are special schools for special students. So when you look at the national rankings, they're a combination of these magnet schools, like Thomas Jefferson and Alexandria, the Bronx School of Science, uh -huh. etc. Uh -huh. uh, and we get com very comparable results to those schools, but with open enrollment.
with no pretesting, with no selective admission. So I think when people look at charter schools, they ought to look at the results that these schools get, the alternative education that it gives the kids, education which is aligned with the kids' interests, not with the cookie-cutter state approach of the same curriculum for every student. Uh, and when you get to the bottom line results, uh, then you start to see the real value of this alternative education process. Is it is it fair to say that then some of this outcry is really because um, the people that operate charter schools have levers that they can move if something isn't working um, that maybe you cannot do in the public school system. Um, and maybe sort of the opponents feel like it isn't as transparent. Um, you shouldn't be using taxpayer dollars to do that. I mean, is it is that sort of a fair sort of assessment of what the people that are crying? Out? I've seen all sorts of things. It's the teacher unions that object to this for multiple reasons. But when I'm hearing you talk, it, it seems like uh, very much like a company, which is, you know, if you're not performing, you're probably not going to last there very long, uh, simply just because, you know, it will become apparent at some point. And uh, the mandate of the company is to do something. And if you're not moving towards that something, you're probably not going to last there because it can't sustain you. Um, and so is it maybe that kind of mentality that is being applied to charter schools that sort of the regular, you know, the people that are objecting uh, to it are, are sort of going, you can't do that. It's like the privatization of education and this should be, you know, is that a little bit of it that you have the ability well, to control, control and change things within the school? I, I think it's a, even a bigger issue than that, sorry. That, in fact, uh, the United States has the attitude that uh, we use taxpayer dollars to provide education opportunity to all of our young people. And historically, those taxpayer dollars were only spent in the standard public school system. And the public school system was set up on its rigorous basis of you have to have certified teachers, you have to have this bureaucratic setup, you have to have kind of equal opportunity, which quite often equal opportunity uh, uh, is interpreted as the uh, you have to set the education process at the lowest common denominator, not, not accommodate children with different skill levels, different interest levels, but have the same cookie-cutter approach to everything. So over many years, the public school system was built up around those principles. And today, uh, things are changing. Yeah. Competition yeah. is present. The, the results have been, quote, unacceptable for a half a century. And people have been making suggestions on how to improve the system. The system hasn't changed at all, and therefore people have started to look, as I was involved in looking, at alternative approaches that are results-based, that you measure the quality of the approach by the quality of the results achieved. So it's easy to criticize what we're doing as different, which it is different, 
it's easy to criticize us because we don't hire certified teachers. We pay teachers bonuses. We don't have tenure. Uh, we, you know, we we give good teachers bonuses. If a teacher is not achieving good results, we can uh, replace that teacher. So that's competition to the embedded system, and the system. Almost regardless of the system, it doesn't like competition. Yeah. Now, but the big picture here is, as you point out, the state provides the money for this educational opportunity. And and historically, that money was only spent in the standard public school system. We've now started to expand the number of charter school students. And I think there are, out of the 50 million students in the U.S., about three plus million are in charter schools today. We've seen states just like Arizona, just real time, has come out with a voucher system that says, yes, the state is on the hook to pay for your child's education. But we don't require you to go to a public school, Arizona has just set up a voucher system where I think the number is $6,500 per year is available for any child to go to any school, private school, religious school, etc., or be homeschooled or online schooling. Uh, and the state is paying for that child's education. Uh, with a number of alternative approaches for the child achieving that education. And I think that is the trend that we're going to see more of. You know, historically, this was put in a very colorful term, which was the, <laughs> the backpack approach. That every kid, when they go to kindergarten, gets a backpack. Yeah. And the state puts the annual fee that they're willing to pay for that child's education into the backpack and wherever that kid goes to school they wear their backpack and they take the money to get that education whether it's a private school public school charter school home school whatever whatever it is <laughs> so but the the public school system really sees this as competition and therefore comes up with all sorts of reasons why it won't work etc but I, I just come back to the point when they say it won't work what about our results don't you like we run the best schools in the united states uh, we run our schools uh, the math science reading scores on international tests for our kids are higher than any other country or, or province you know, higher than shanghai higher than uh, finland higher than Korea, uh, <laughs> whatever place you want to look at. What about our results don't you like? You know, I was doing um, some reading around this, and um, it actually seems that the public is in, generally in favor of these type of schools. And um, there's also um, the, the favored ratio is greater among African-Americans who are key beneficiaries of these schools? And then I, I'm sure that you know about this study, the Scars, Scarsdale Harlem Achievement Gap, the New York school no. system. You know, the, the public is in favor of a great 
education for their child. Um, and then that's the first and foremost requirement of most families. Yeah. I mean, if you buy a house, you want it in a good school district. If you Correct. Accepting a new job, what's the educational opportunity Correct. for my kids? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> the public is in favor of this. Uh, but there are loud voices against this because those loud voices don't like competition. And, and, and there are other subtleties involved here. Yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned magnet schools before. Uh, and if you looked at what went on in, uh, on Long Island and New York City, there were a number of great STEM schools there, which were selective admission. Public schools, but selective admission. And the student body was typically demographically not identical to the local community. If you look at Thomas Jefferson in Alexandria, quite often ranked the best high school in the United States. A banquet school specializing in STEM. Student body, not demographically similar to Virginia population. So what has been the result? Mayor de Basio in New York wanted to do away with selective admission to these schools. After a decade or two in Thomas Jefferson, the solution to achieving equity, equity in demographic distribution of students was to do away with selective admission. So what you're, what you're quite often doing in in public schools, the magnet schools, which have been very, very good in the United States, is dumbing them down by doing away with selective admission, just to make sure that you have the right demographic distribution. And I, I don't have to often uh, stand up and, and yell at the television when I'm watching. This. But <laughs> that's what, that's where we news. differ. That's where you and I differ. There was a news. There was a news program about Thomas Jefferson, and they made the decision to do away with selective admission. And it was a Hispanic mom whose child had worked their butt off in uh, Thomas Jefferson's only a high school, but in grades K through eight to achieve the academic excellence to get admission into Thomas Jefferson. And this Hispanic mother was saying, what an insult to my family and my child that the state is now doing away with this selective admission process after my child has worked so hard to achieve admission. And now admission is just going to be regulated by quotas. And I, I just stood up and cheered that, that mom, uh, who's obviously hurt greatest concern was the education for her child yeah and her child was succeeding and now the state was going to diminish that success by removing that selective admission process and just uh letting anyone in um, so fast forward to that i mean we're now having debates about does Harvard have selective admission on a demographic basis, equity? Do they discriminate against accomplishment? Do they discriminate against results? 
how many other schools do exactly the same thing? You know, in listening to you speak, I was just thinking, um, you know, I had mentioned the Scarsdale Harlem Achievement Gap, which is basically just to explain to people, um, it was a study that was done in the New York school system where uh, they looked at the outcomes of charter schools and I think 94% applied via a lottery for the charter school for eighth grade. Um, and on the other side of it, the ones that uh, made it through the lottery and into the charter school ended up scoring 30 points higher on standardized math tests than their peers who lost the lottery, um, which clearly is narrowing sort of that gap between uh, rich and poor school districts. And that's why they call it Scarsdale, you know, one of the richest school districts and Harlem, which was one of the poorest. Yeah. So it's interesting. But then some people will say, well, listen, is it are charter schools producing better outcomes? Is it the school or is it that you've got better parents and better material to work with that chooses that school? Um, you know, can you argue that it's making sausage, but sausage is sausage. It was going to be sausage anyway. Um, so what's sort of the answer to that? Well, it's, Lots and lots of studies that have gone on, and and when you see the studies coming out of the university schools of education, like Stanford and others, uh, they quite often dismiss the results differences, the results like you mentioned, and they basically say on average charter schools are no better than public schools. Um, you have to remember that charter schools were started to replace failing public schools. So the only reason for charter schools initially was uh, the opportunity for kids who lived in a zip code with a failing public school to get an alternative education, alternative opportunity for education. Um, they, the focus of charter schools has expanded since then, as I mentioned earlier, to high academic standards, higher than normal public schools, uh, focus on topics which you can't see in normal public schools, fine arts, languages, STEM, etc. get results. If you just look at the top rankings of schools, the U.S. News and World Report, uh, they're dominated by good charter schools and the so-called magnet schools, the selective admission schools. So there's no question that the top schools in the United States are either charter schools or selective admission schools. There's absolutely no debate on that topic whatsoever. Uh, you can always find uh, poor performing charter schools just as you can find poorly performing public schools. The only difference between the two is you get your charter reviewed and renewed every five years or so. And if you're a failing charter school, you don't get your charter renewed. If you're a failing public school, you're still a failing public school. So you, you don't, don't get shut down. So let me then Craig ask you some practical questions. Um, how many charter schools are there in the United States? What are the states with the most charter schools? And then how do students end up going to a charter school? We talked a little bit about that, but 
if I'm a student and I want to attend a charter school, what do I need to do? Um, and then on the other side, I would like to understand a little bit about how charter schools are established. How many are there in existence right now? What are the states with the most schools? Um, how do students? Yeah. You're, you're a STEM major, aren't you? Uh, unfortunately, no. It's actually a great regret. I studied architecture, which um, my mother... All right, but you you understand numbers, don't you? I think so. <laughs> All right. There, I, think I hope so. There are a little over 3 million kids in charter schools. Probably an average uh, charter school has 500 kids. Uh, do the division, and that's the number of charter schools, okay? Okay. Um. <clears throat> The states with the largest percentage of their children in charter schools, um, if you consider Washington, D.C. a state, Washington, D.C. has about 50% of its kids in charter schools. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Arizona, as a state, has about 20% of its kids in charter schools. Uh, and that's the largest percentage of any state. Uh, if you look at different regions within the states, uh, they vary. For example, after uh, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, the New Orleans Public School District was dissolved. Uh, it was a very poorly functioning school district. It was replaced almost entirely with charter schools. So in New Orleans, most of the kids go to charter schools. So it, it varies quite a bit. I'm doing this interview in Montana. Uh -huh. um, Montana is one of the five or six states that doesn't have charter schools. You have to have a state law to facilitate the formation of charter schools. But this, <laughs> expanding on your question, if you look at the the cost of charter schools, uh, and which is paid for by the state, uh, charter schools tend to operate at a lower cost than normal public schools, usually in the range of 10 to 15 percent less per pupil per year than a normal public school. Oh, that's interesting. And, and part of the reason is that when you when you're in a state with normal public schools, uh, the state builds the school, gives you the physical plant, which is paid for by taxpayer money, and then gives you the operating budget to run kids through that school. In most states, charter schools are not given a capital grant to build the school. You have to build the school and then operate the school on just the nominal yearly stipend that the state pays you per student, which is typically a bit less than the normal public school student gets per year. So there's actually a, a cost savings associated with charter schools because it costs the state less to operate them. Um, so... You spend less, you tend to get better results. What about that is not good? And, and how do they get established? Does somebody just decide, hey, we need to have a charter school here or what? 
you get the you get the frustrated ex CEO of Intel saying, <laughs> "I'm very interested in giving kids the opportunity to get the best K-12 education in the world." I can't do that through the normal public school system, uh, but what I want to be able to do is to offer children that opportunity for free. And for, for, for free here means the taxpayers are paying for the child's education. So I want to offer the child that education. The state is paying for it. The taxpayers paying for it. It doesn't cost the child any additional tuition to go to this school. You know, there are great, there are great private schools in the United States, but they charge 20, 30, Forty thousand dollars a year, whereas the average kid uh, in a public school system gets maybe nine or ten thousand dollars a year from the state for their education. So I want to offer the child, funded by the taxpayer, an opportunity to get an education better than a forty thousand dollar a year private school education, and that means any child can take advantage of it regardless of their socioeconomic condition. And, but then it takes somebody spearheading it or are there also? Oh, yeah, it, it, it takes somebody like a, a frustrated ex-CEO who says, the system is broken, I can't fix it. the fundamental system because it doesn't want competition, it's not willing to change. Uh, the state legislatures and their wisdoms have seen fit in 45 of the states to uh, enact charter school laws so that Anyone can go to the state and apply for a charter, and if they if they fulfill the conditions, you know, get the right academic results, uh, you're financially solvent. Uh, you do background checks on your teachers. Uh, you have an acceptable graduation rate. You can run a charter school. So essentially, somebody has to be the CEO of the charter school or a group of charter schools or whatever. And is there any private funding involved at all? Are there any private dollars that are going towards this? Yes, I mean some some schools have a lot of philanthropic support. Uh, varies by state. Uh, but uh, most of our schools run basically just on the taxpayer dollars. Okay. We, we do a bit of, of uh, office side fundraising, uh, especially to help build schools mm -hmm. because, you know, we, we have to uh, effectively go to the bond market to finance our schools. Uh, and when you go to the bond market, uh, <laughs> one of the things they like to see our results that <laughs> you're doing a good job educating kids. Imagine <laughs> you, that. That's, you, that's you weird. Waiting, you have a waiting list for kids to get into your school and bringing the taxpayer dollars along with them. Uh, so, you know, if you have a good reputation, you can you can play that game. Yeah. Um, the, the really tough thing is to start the first school uh before, and before you have any reputation of results, and uh, so that's that's the kind of the activation barrier you have to get over to get started. That's why most charter schools start off in you know abandoned stores or churches or things like that, because those are the cheapest uh, 
facilities in which to operate to get started. Uh, and once you get a reputation, then you can go to the bond market and uh, and get uh, some other philanthropic support. But there's a bit of an activation barrier to overcome to get started. And you would think that it would be a self-fulfilling cycle that, you know, success, more people want to invest into it, more success, like a wheel. But it sounds like then you have, uh, that's the sort of maybe where the politics and, you know, would not invented here kind of thinking comes in and slows the roll. Um, so, and am I correct? And I just want to make sure um, also for the audience that anybody can apply to a charter school. Any student can say, I'm interested in going to that school and apply. Um, and if it is oversubscribed, then it's done by a lottery. Is, that, is my understanding correct? Yes. Well, most states uh, have separated the charter schools from the normal Department of Education within the state. Because as they're an alternative to the normal K-12 schools, you don't want the same people supervising both because there's this competitive issue. Yeah. So normally the state sets up a charter school board. Conflict of interest, yeah. Then the charter school board is the one that you have to apply to to get the charter, uh, and you have to show a business plan, and uh, and that you you have the capability and the philosophy and the wherewithal to run these schools effectively. So the the charter authorizer uh, is the one that you're accountable to, accountable on the basis of results, both academic results, financial results, graduation results, etc. Um, and Craig, do you know, in, in your view, it sounds like, you know, uh, there is a lot of heavy lifting to be done in, in, in getting these things deployed. Um, do you know anything about what the growth rate is? Um, you've run large, you know, complex businesses before. So is, is this something that is sustainable, scalable? What's the growth rate at? What does it also, what does it require? to continue kind of deploying. Uh, what's your vision around all of this and, and sort of what is your assessment? Well, the uh, recently the, the growth rate has been uh, pretty good. Uh, and with, through COVID, I think uh, charter schools, uh, although they were public schools, they had a little bit more flexibility in how to respond to masks. Uh, shutdowns, online education, etc. But as I mentioned earlier, there are about a little over 3 million charter school students out of 50 million K-12 students. That's about 6%. Um, Arizona, as I mentioned, has something like 20%. Washington, D.C. has 50%. It's kind of interesting in Washington, D.C., which is uh, something we hadn't talked about a degree one, one of the, the common comments you have from the public school supporters uh, etc is the schools could be better if we spent more money we're just not spending enough money to make our schools competitive and if we pay teachers more if we uh, raise taxes more and spent more money Education would be better. I do not 
believe that there is a single study that shows the more you spend on education, the better the education process. Mm-hmm. If you look at the urban centers in the United States, whether it's New York or uh, uh, Baltimore or Washington, D.C. or California, uh, they spend more money per child than anybody else. Uh, Washington, D.C. is the classic example of they, they spend something in the range of $25,000 per child per year. Washington, D.C., before the advent of charter schools, also had the worst public school results in the United States. You know, you know that you know that I'm from D.C. and I went to public school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there is no correlation between how much money you spend and the results that you get. The only correlation is good teachers get good results. If you don't have high expectations, you don't get good results. Yeah. If you don't have accountability, you don't get good results. So the the, the, uh, the argument quite often, and again, the, the existing bureaucracy looks with disdain at charter schools because it's if they're getting good results and they're spending less money than we are, how can we demand more money for our teachers? Yeah. So, I mean, there's this interesting dichotomy that pops up. But, uh, you know, everybody has their solution to this problem. I mean, one of the solutions funded by a, a, a lot of money in the United States was making classes smaller making schools smaller, more intimate, and therefore better student-teacher interactions, smaller schools, you would get better results. Uh, Lots and lots of other things have been tried. The only clear correlations known to mankind are that good teachers get good results. You can't get good results unless you have high expectations and high standards. And you have to have accountability. Yeah. If you don't have those three things, game over. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny when you look at other, um, I had the uh, unfortunate, distinct experience of um, when I was younger, maybe in sixth or seventh grade, um, my mother had a uh, had become an advisor uh uh, basically the Prime Minister of India, and had moved me and my brother there for a while to see how we would do in school. And, um, you know, we were in very good private schools in America, uh, and we went to what's called public schools over there, uh, private here, considered private here, and I couldn't keep up. I mean, these were kids in sixth grade learning chemistry, physics, something else I had not even heard of in American, in a good American private Catholic school in Washington, D.C., they were learning three languages. Uh, it's sort of an abusive system over there is what I found. But, um, uh, you know, they're very serious. I mean, it's education or bust. Um, there's no other option, really. And I, I think um, absent that sort of attitude, we have all sorts of things competing. Um, uh, you know, there are other levers that you also kind of need 
need to be able to move without that culture, right? Because that's the only culture over there in places like that. And I'm sure, you know, to some extent, and or maybe completely like China as well. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and my, the result for me was I just ended up dropping out of all the things I didn't understand. You know, my mother said, don't worry, you're just there for the experience. So I stopped going to algebra because I didn't know what that was. Chemistry, biology, physics. Uh, and I just sat in on English and history and basketball. Um, so there you go. But um, I think there are also some, you know, probably some cultural components as well. But um, I, you know, I wanted to ask you in speaking about, uh, we spoke about a little bit about India and China. Um, I don't know if you were aware of this. If you, what Have you had any thoughts on, I was reading something about how the Chinese are coming in and funding charter schools uh, in the United States, which is happening in pockets. And I wondered if you knew about this, if you had kind of any thoughts about this or. Well, I think there's been a, a, a substantial movement um, in Chinese uh, from, for some time. One of the, the efforts has been um, to recognizing that the U.S university system is uh, still kind of ranked number one in the world and a large number of Chinese students want to come here. Mm -hmm. There's an opportunity to send uh, Chinese students to schools in the United States uh, in anticipation of their applying to universities in the United States. So do their last two years of high school or things like this in the United States. And there's been <laughs> a push in that over the past. Uh, uh, one of the uh, one of the discussions in the state of Arizona is a large Taiwanese uh, uh, semiconductor company coming to the Phoenix area, bringing literally hundreds of, of Taiwanese families with hundreds of students and wanting those students to have the opportunity to the best education possible. And uh, the interest of that company then goes forward to saying, well, uh, let me look at the top 10 schools in Arizona. They're all charter schools. Could we possibly have a charter school next to our site? I mean, these are ongoing discussions. So uh, the rest of the world is is really very fully committed to best education possible for their kids. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's at the we, point that we, it's we, abusive. We, it really is. We talk about that for our kids in the United States, but when we look at the results, the results are rather unsatisfactory. Yeah. And if you look at the top schools in the United States, they are not the standard public schools that yeah. we depended on for decades. Yeah. Uh, they're charter schools or magnet schools or private schools or parochial schools. Um, but uh, results speak for themselves. And, uh, uh, you know, my, my goal in, in getting involved in this area was to give kids the opportunity for the best possible education. That remains my goal. And I think we're able to do that with our charter schools. We're competitive with anyone else in the world. And we're going to continue to do that. 
And when anybody doesn't like us, we just say, what about our results don't you like? Well, Craig, I think that is a fantastic note to end this conversation on. You've been so generous with your time. Uh, I know it's a little over an hour now, uh, and I don't want to keep you, uh, but thank you so much for taking the time to talk about education and uh, the charter school system with us. I think that this will be really enlightening to a lot of people, um, and we generally um, have calls and people uh, kind of uh, give us comments in the chat. So uh, maybe there'll be, you know, we'll have comments and questions. And, and if so, um, uh, I will try to answer those the best I can. But the point is to generate some interest and curiosity about this. So I thank you very much for your time. Um, and uh, we'll look forward, uh, hopefully, to speaking to you again on this topic um and i hope you have a great rest of your day today it's been my pleasure to you thank you so much all right bye-bye so that was our interview with uh craig barrett um and his involvement in the charter school system um i would really like to get him to come and talk about his extraordinary uh life and career um and then i would like to get his wife to come and speak to us i don't know if any of you were here for the beginning of this show but if you don't know who his wife is you should she was our former air force secretary uh a fighter pilot ambassador to finland president of thunderbird uh, and of course, Craig Barrett's wife. Um, and uh, so if it sounds like I am a super fan of her, uh, I certainly am. Um, so thank, thank you everybody for joining us tonight. We are taking next week off uh, and then we have a few really interesting guests the week after, um, which will be up on our schedule. Um, so we hope that you will join us as well as check out some of the earlier shows. Uh, the last two that we did, which I am very proud of and thought were very, very interesting, were uh, a tribute to Dolly Parton and a uh, dive into the hardcore punk alternative uh, and independent music scenes, particularly in Washington, D.C., the seminal punk scene of Washington, D.C., that uh, out of which came bands like um, Henry Rollins, uh, and eventually, you know, he went on to Black Flag, but Bad Brains, Fugazi, Rites of Spring, Scream, Beefeater, Marshall Man, et cetera, et cetera. So we hope that you will check out those shows too. Take care, everybody.